Good morning, Calvary Quakertown, and welcome. It's good to have you with us this morning, and it's good to be here. We're in a series that we're calling For Everyone, and we're looking at Paul's letter to the Romans, where he's kind of introducing himself, and he's introducing his mission to them. And that's why Romans gives us the most complete picture we have of kind of what Paul's about and what message he's living and speaking because he's introducing himself to a group of people that haven't yet met him. So we're learning an awful lot about Paul and about the gospel as we work our way through. Well, we're in a dark and dismal section of Romans. In fact, as I was thinking this week, how can I help you fly over what's going on at 30,000 feet and understand what's there. So let me ask you a question. How many of you have heard of Jack McCoy, Claire Kincaid, Abby Carmichael, Alex Cabot? Any of you know those names? Oh, no, okay. They are the prosecutors on Law and Order. How many of you have ever seen Law and Order? I'm convinced Law and Order is on 24-7, 365. You can find a Law and Order, one of those series, on any given time, day or night. Well, the way Law and Order works is the show usually begins with a crime being committed. And some of them are heinous crimes. Now, we often know who's guilty right at the very beginning because that's how the show comes on. And then the prosecutors, McCoy and Kincaid, they then prosecute, they bring the evidence against the defendants. And we all know, because we've seen the beginning, that the world would be a whole lot better if those people were off the streets. In the courtroom, that's the feel of the section that we're in in Romans. So if you could keep a courtroom scene in your mind, we're going to see Paul bring the evidence against people that are accused and are defendant. That's the picture. But before we get there in this hear ye, hear ye kind of setting, we need to remember two bookends. There are two bookends. Now, how many of you know how bookends work, right? Uh, I like bookends. Because if you don't have a bookend, the books fall over, right? And when they fall over, the covers get twisted. You pick it up, the, the pages may be bent. I hate that. You have bookends. You keep things straight on the shelf, right? And when you take the book off, it looks fresh and clean and pure the way it's supposed to look. It doesn't look all messed up. Well, what Paul does in the beginning of Romans, he gives us two bookends to keep things straight. Well, what are the bookends? Well, we've been looking at the one bookend for two weeks now, and I'm going to remind you again, because right out of the chute, Paul gives us the first bookend. The first bookend is in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. So before we get to the courtroom scene, before he brings all the evidence against the accused, here's what he says. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. So when we go through this dark and dismal courtroom section, when Paul's bringing evidence against people, we need to remember, yeah, it may look pretty bad. We may put ourselves into that chair. And the evidence against us is no less than the evidence against these people. I'm guilty too. But remember the first bookend, the gospel brings salvation to all who believe. Keep that bookend in mind. There's another bookend at the end of the courtroom scene, and that's from Romans chapter 3. Romans 3.23 kind of gives the summary statement. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now that's a problem, right? That's the result of the evidence, and we'll look at that part next week. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everybody's guilty. 
Yeah, but he doesn't stop there. Look, it's not even the end of the sentence, right? And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. So even though we are guilty, we can be redeemed, we can be set free, we can be declared right through what Jesus did. There are the two bookends, right? So as we're going through the evidence and we're going through the defendants and the evidence against them and we're feeling like, oh my goodness, the evidence against me is just as great. Remember, bookend one, the gospel is the power of God. It can bring salvation. Bookend number two, yeah, you are guilty, but the free gift of God is redemption through Jesus. The two bookends keep things straight. So keep them in mind. Otherwise, you'll uh, kind of be a mess as we sit there and work through the section. Well, here we go. So we have two bookends and three defendants. We have three defendants. Well, what are the defendants? Well, the first defendant we're going to call the rebellious. The rebellious. And if you were here last week, we actually looked at the rebellious. And uh, maybe a picture uh, to keep in mind as we go through the judgment section. Think about the rebellious and the other groups. Here's the picture. Have you ever thought to yourself, well, we should give them one more chance? Certainly if it's you, right? Give me one more chance. Give them one more chance. I read an interesting article this week. This guy was hired, and his uh, supervisor, after a while, assessed he was doing really well at his job. He's performing reasonably. One problem. The guy had a temper like you would not believe. So if anything didn't go his way, if somebody kind of said something he didn't like or if the machine kind of broke down he was working on, this guy would fly into a fit of rage. Anything that was nearby, he'd pick it up, he'd throw it. He was cursing, screaming, running around. And the supervisor kind of liked the guy. And so like a, like a big brother went over and said, you know, pal, you're doing a good job here. You have to work on that temper. Can you ratchet it down a little bit and, you know, take it easy? Um, this isn't a life or death deal, right? It's kind of meeting the quota, doing the metrics, but calm down. Okay, okay, I'm going to try it didn't happen. Well, it went on, on, over and over and over again. And eventually he said, look, I'm going to have to report you to HR. No, please don't, please don't. Give me one more chance. Gave him one more chance and, and it didn't work. He was trying really hard, but he was walking down the hall one day, leaving the cafeteria. And this other guy was kind of looking at his phone, probably the Calvary app. He's looking at his app. And he bumped into the guy and splashed a little bit of coffee through the little hole in the Starbucks. Did you ever have that? Kind of splashed on his shirt. The guy lost it. He threw the scalding coffee into the guy's face, hauls off and punches the guy in the head, and he winds up losing his job. You know, I was thinking about that story as I was reading through the first few chapters of Romans. And in the account, it's almost as if God's the benevolent, caring supervisor, but the judgment that comes is kind of like the HR verdict. You know, God says, I've given you a chance. I've given you a chance. I'm doing all that I can. I give you all these things. I'm telling you to do this. I'm, and you refuse, you refuse, you refuse, you refuse. Um, the verdict has to come. That's the picture. The rebellious. Yeah, here's a verse or so that, helped us, that will help us uh, picture the rebellious from last week. And if you were here, you know how this went. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Now remember the dynamic that we talked about from last week? The dynamic go, goes like this. Suppression, right? They suppress it. 
But then there's distortion. If you're suppressing the truth that God's giving, you don't have all the data. If you don't have all the data, what you have is now distorted. You then reject, there's rejection, suppression, distortion, rejection, and substitution. We need something that we're living for. Something has to be in the middle. When we reject God because we've suppressed the evidence that he gives and all the data, we then substitute God with something else. See how that works? And uh, we ended last week by saying, you know you have that problem if when you read the list of things at the end of chapter 1 and you say, but I know those people. I know, I've seen them on TV, I work with them, I go to Calvary Church, I know those people. If you say you know those people, but don't think you are those people, you have the problem. You are in the midst of the dynamic. You're living the progression. Um, there's a legend, not quite sure if it's true or not. Uh, maybe true. G.K. Chesterton was a Christian, a very, very brilliant kind of guy. And he was pretty famous back in Britain, you know, years and years ago. And he was asked one day by a newspaper reporter, so, uh, Mr. Chesterton, um, what's the problem with the world? And they were waiting, right, for Chesterton to say, well, the problem with the world are these crooked, corrupt politicians. The problem of the world is uh, unequal economics. The problem of the world is a lack of education. But you know what Chesterton said? He didn't say any of that. Reporter said, Mr. Chesterton, what's the problem with the world? Chesterton said, I am. I am. He got the section from Romans 1. He didn't look around and say, I know those people. What's the problem with the world? He said, I am. Because those that are doing those things are living just like I live. I'm the problem. So that's kind of the picture of the rebellious. But then beginning in chapter 2, the section we're going to look at today, we meet defendant number two. And we're going to call the group in this defendant number two category, we're going to call those the righteous. But righteous is in quotes. They're not really righteous. They think they're righteous. Now you may think, I know these people too. Right? That means you got the problem, right? The righteous. Okay, here's the verse that begins chapter 2 that will help you understand this group, the second defendant. So the first group of defendants, the rebellious, they're guilty, right? Paul brings the evidence, they're guilty. Now the righteous. Here's what they say. You therefore, you righteous ones, you have no excuse. How do we know they're righteous? Look how Paul describes them. You who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another... You are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, does that sound familiar? I don't mean from your life. It should there too. But that has echoes of what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, doesn't it? What does Jesus say? Do not judge for you will be judged the same way that you judge others. That's the point. So Paul says to the righteous, you guys are in complete agreement with everything that's happened thus far. And when we look at that group of sinners, we look at the rebellious from chapter 1, you're there with, with God saying, that's right, they're terrible, they're wretches, they deserve condemnation. I'm sure glad I'm not like them. But Paul says, time out. You are like them. You are them. 
you condemn, you assess what they're doing, but you do the very things that they do. And some of you are thinking, yeah, but how, how can that be? Well, remember uh, some of what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount? You don't just commit murder with your hands, with a knife or a gun or a bat. You can also commit murder in your heart. If you're angry at someone, you have the same seeds in your heart. You may not commit adultery with your body, but if you're lusting in your heart, you're committing adultery on the inside. And Jesus says when it comes to living before God, inside and outside, the seeds are exactly the same. So here's the point from, Romans, uh, from Matthew 7. We've said this before. Since we know ourselves a whole lot better than we know anybody else, we should never look at someone, assess our morality and theirs, and think that we're superior to them because we only know a fraction of their life and we know a whole host of stuff that we do. That's the problem. Speck, sawdust, two-by-four telephone pole. That's what Paul's saying. Right, here's another way to think about it. How many of you have ever made a butt call? Raise your hand. Okay. How many of you have ever received a butt call? Yeah. And uh, it's kind of funny at first, right? Your phone rings, you answer, and hello? And it, it takes you a few seconds because you're like, well, are they busy? They can't answer. But all of a sudden you realize that they didn't mean to call you. I don't know about you. I start listening very carefully then, right? I close the door, turn it up, and I wonder what they're going to say. I, but whenever I do that, I'm always conscious of the fact, yeah, but when I make a butt call, I better be careful what I'm saying. And the problem is you don't know when you make a butt call. And they may be listening in on your conversation just like you want to listen into their conversation. That's kind of what Paul's saying. Here's what, here's what Paul says. I'll translate it for you. You're always on butt dial with God. And you know what that whole first part of Romans 2 says is this. What will be the standard by which the righteous will be judged? Their own words. Their own values. We'll judge them by their butt call. So one day when you are the defendant and you're sitting at that little booth and the prosecutors from law and order over there and they're bringing the evidence... All the judge will do is take out his cell phone and replay conversations that we've had when we've condemned others, when we've belittled others, when we've said things that they should do this and they shouldn't do that, when we do the same thing and we refrain from the same thing. Our own mouths will convict us. That's what Paul says about the righteous. We're always on butt dial with God. It's always running. And if you think you're righteous, morally superior to this group or to that group, yeah, who's going to be able to stand at that judgment? We don't even need the Bible for this one, do we? Who's going to stand under that judgment? Would you and I be able to stand under the judgment where we are judged by, the own, by our own words that we've said, the own, our own values that we've communicated, we do what we say people shouldn't do. We don't do what we say people shouldn't do. We condemn ourselves. And Paul says, so you all think you're righteous. And you look down your snooty noses 
at those people in chapter 1. And you begin to say, that's right, they should be condemned. We do the same thing. We hide it. We try to pretend. But we're always on butt dial with God. One day, the recording gets played. No one can stand. How are you feeling so far? Remember, remember the book ends, right? Don't, don't get too sad. Remember the book ends. Gospel is the power of God. All who have been rescued by Jesus will. But in the middle, boy, it sure gets dark, doesn't it? Well, we have another defendant to introduce you to. The third defendant we're going to call the religious. Now, I know that many commentators lump everything in chapter 2 into one category. And they say Paul's talking about the Jews all the way through chapter 2. And maybe he is, I don't know. But interestingly, the word Jew, the title Jew, doesn't show up to verse 17. And there were a whole bunch of moral people that weren't Jewish running around in the first century. And they would have looked at all the people committing the stuff in chapter 1. And they would have said, boy, I'm so glad I'm not like them. So I kind of think there are three defendants and not two. By the time we get to 17, however, now the Jews are brought into the defendant's seat. And here's what Paul says. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, so up until then we've had very moral people, we've had righteous people, but now it's the Jews. If you rely on the law and you boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you have been instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher for little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then, you who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, look at this, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Notice the law didn't really show up in the first 16 verses. That was kind of morality. That was righteous. But now the law comes to the fore. And the Jews, they pictured themselves. They were the light to the world. They had God's revelation. And they were to go about spreading it. But rather than applying it and teaching themselves and living it, they were telling others. They were doing kind of the same thing the righteous do. They just now had the law in order to do it. As I read through chapter 2 this week, I kept thinking of David Kinnaman's book entitled Unchristian. Now, I know I've mentioned that before. Here's basically what Kinnaman says in the book. The number one reason that non-Christians in our country say that they do not become Christian or attend church is because the Christians act unchristian. What? The Christians act unchristian. And here's the thesis of the book. These people, whatever they know, these non-Christians, these non-churchgoers, whatever they know of Jesus, they say, why don't the people that go to church act like that? Why don't the people that attend church and that say they're following Jesus and that are Christians, why don't they live Christianly? Instead, they live like Romans 2. 
you know what? We need to raise our hands and say, yeah, we're kind of guilty too, right? It isn't just the Jews that have this problem. It's the religious that have this problem. Because pretty soon you learn what should be done. Pretty soon you take God's word. You begin to say, yeah, this is true. We believe it's God's word. And we have to make ourselves feel a little better. So we kind of shade some stuff, put some stuff aside, bring other stuff to the fore that we don't struggle with. And then all of a sudden we begin to make pronouncements. We, get, we begin to condemn. We begin to feel superior based on the Bible. How sick is that? So God is blasphemed because of the religious. Huh, kind of weird. That didn't stop with Judaism. That continues with churchgoers, don't you think? Well, it wasn't only the law that the Jews did this with. It was with the sign that the Jews had. And the sign was circumcision. And every time I think of circumcision, I'm sure Abraham must have at one time said, now God, help me figure this out. You gave Noah the sign of the rainbow and you're giving me the sign of circumcision. Well, what the heck is up with this, right? Um, well, so here's what's going on. The Jews began to say, wait a minute, we have the sign of a relationship with God. Therefore, we don't only have the law, we have the sign that we are God's people. We have the external picture that God loves us and that we're his people and that we're his followers and that he loves us and blesses us and cares about us more than he cares about anybody else. What does Paul say? You can't judge the inside by the outside. That's what he says. Um, do you ever see people uh, selling imitation as if it was the real thing? Sure. Um, as it becomes dark in Manhattan, the sidewalks become littered with sheets, bed sheets, that are opened up and lots of goods listed there. There are Louis Vuitton bags, there are Kate Spade bags, there are Rolex watches. They're all kind of very different. Now, they're all fakes. None of them are real. But they're being portrayed as real. They're imitations being presented as the real thing. Now, here's a real important point. If you're going to pass off an imitation as the real thing, what must you take care of meticulously? The packaging, right? The packaging must be perfect to push an imitation as the real thing. And so if you were to go up and look at the fakes, you'll see Louis Vuitton little bags that hold the imitation purse. You'll see what looks like a Rolex box with a little sticker and all with a fake Rolex in it. The packaging must be perfect to push an imitation as the real thing. That's what Paul says at the end of Romans 2. Guys, you think the real thing is in the packaging? The real thing is not in the packaging. The real thing is on the inside. You guys may have the outside, but the outside is a sign of nothing because you don't have anything on the inside. Well, it may help us to understand. So what in the world is up with the sign of circumcision? I better sit down. I get a little queasy. <laughs> so what's going on with the sign of circumcision? Here's what's going on. You need to know this, right? Because the Bible's all about circumcision. Here's what it is. In the ancient world... You never signed a contract. You didn't sign a contract. In fact, the language was, you never signed a contract, you cut a contract. 
you cut it. That's why a contract was actually a drama. You go through the drama of the contract. Now, some of you may remember that from Genesis chapter 15. In Genesis 15, God's making a covenant. He's cutting a covenant with Abraham. And God says, okay, I'm going to form this contract with you, Abraham. So here's what you need to do. Go, to, go get a bunch of animals and cut them in half. Because you cut a contract, you don't write a contract. So Abraham goes and gets animals and he cuts them in half. And then what would normally happen is the uh, subject, the servant, would normally kind of wander through the pieces as the superior would say, and this is what I'm going to do to you if you don't fulfill the contract. That's the picture, right? You dramatize it. Amazingly, in Genesis 15, Abraham doesn't walk with God through the pieces. In fact, Abraham doesn't walk through the pieces at all, does he? God walks through the pieces. And the image is really weird, right? I'm sure they're shaking their heads. People are reading. Wait a minute. God's saying, and Abraham, if you fail to live up to the contract, may I, God, be cut to pieces. What? Oh, yeah. Fast forward to the cross. There you actually see that happening. Well, what's going on with um, circumcision? Same thing. Circumcision is the sign of a contract. And here was the point. If you break the contract, you will not be cut off a little. You will be cut off completely. Cut off from God, cut off from people, cut off from blessing, cut off from life. It's a sign of a reality. Well, wait a minute. If, if you're following where we are in Romans, you're probably thinking, well, wait a minute everybody's guilty, that means everybody's going to be cut off from God and from people and blessing. And Yes, that's exactly what it means. Remember the bookends. Remember the bookends. Jesus, the gospel, the power of salvation. Jesus, the only way of redemption. But everybody deserves to be completely cut off from God, from people, from God's blessing in life. Rewind a little bit from Romans. What happened to Jesus? He was cut off from God, from people, from life, from blessing. Jesus is our circumcision. That's the, but the Jews totally lost that, right? The Jews are saying, wait a minute, I've got the sign of the covenant. That means I'm in. I've got the sign of the covenant. Therefore, that means God loves me more than other people. No, 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 no. It means you've got the sign of the covenant curse. And you're living out the guilt, therefore you're going to reap the, reap the consequences of the covenant curse. That's what the sign means. Well, maybe you're feeling pretty good, right? So, well, I'm glad I don't know. I didn't have all that. Well, how about the sign of baptism? You know what that sign is a sign of? In and of our sins, in and of, without Jesus and redemption, we are dead in ourselves. We're underwater. We're dead. We are drowned and disconnected from God, from life, all those things. But through Jesus, we are raised with him. That's the picture. Can I say it nicely? If you don't have the reality on the inside, the sign on the outside means nothing. 
It doesn't matter how many times a month or a year your butt sits in one of these seats. That's the outside. If you don't have the reality on the inside, you're showing up at a church service on the outside means nothing. Just like circumcision didn't make somebody rightly connected to God, so church attendance and baptism and doctrinal statements and all that stuff doesn't make somebody right with God either. It's the reality on the inside, knowing and living the reality of the bookends that causes us to have life and connection with God and other people and blessing. That's where we are in the story. So don't follow the religious in thinking that somehow the externals of religious trappings cause the internal. No, no, no. The externals are signs of an internal reality. The external signs don't give you the reality. The reality is pictured in the signs. Make sure you always go the right way. So we have three defendants. We have the rebellious. They're the ones that God gave them over, and we all look at them and say, oh, my goodness, they're running off the rails. They're living the dynamic. But then we've seen the righteous, those that are on butt call with God, those that condemn other people doing wrong stuff, but we do the same thing. We're in that group too, right? And here we are in church. We're also the religious. Here's the bottom line. We are three times guilty. We live out the dynamic of the rebellious, we ignore the log in our own eye as we critique the speck in other people's eye, just like, the, just like the righteous. And we trust in the trappings of externals rather than the reality of the internal, just like the religious. So what's the verdict? Well, so far we've seen it like this. God gave them over. Here's what that means. God gave them what they wanted. God gave them what they wanted. They suppress the truth of God. They distort what's real. They reject God and they substitute something for him. What does God say? Have it your way. Have it your way. Live for the substitute. Live for your righteousness. Live for your morality. Live for your religion. See where that gets you. And we're living the consequences. Well, there's one verdict. And it's not too pleasant. Here's the verdict. God will repay each person according to what they have done. And some of you are real nervous now thinking, what? What happened to the bookends? Yeah, Paul didn't lose his mind. Um, here's, what, here's what Paul's reminding us of. That internal reality produces an external change. It's not perfect. It's not complete. It's not perfection. It's progression. It's growing in those things. I've said this uh, over the summer. Those that are invited, invite others. Those that are blessed, bless others. Those that are forgiven, forgive others. Those that live out the gospel, share that gospel with others. If you have that on the inside, you'll change on the outside. So we have all sinned and fall short of God's glory. But our work should be demonstrating what's on the inside. The apples on a tree don't make the tree an apple tree. They're evidence that it is an apple tree. So what is it on the inside and what fruit is it producing on the outside? That's the point. Well, how are we going to end this thing? Well, I mentioned that Paul obviously has the Sermon on the Mount, he obviously has Jesus in view. But if you were to take Romans chapter 1, the rebellious, 
and you were to take Romans 2, the righteous and the religious, and you were to kind of create characters out of them, it seems to me we would have the story of the two sons from Luke chapter 15. Wouldn't we? All Luke is doing is rehearsing Jesus' parable of the prodigal sons in a law, in a law court format. Now let me just rehearse the story and you see if it doesn't fit. The younger son is rebellious. The younger son's running off the rails. He approaches his father and he says, Dad, I don't want you anymore. I want your stuff. And the father amazingly gives him his share of the inheritance. He takes off and squanders it in wild living. And if you look at the description that Paul gives at the end of Romans 1, it sounds an awful lot like the description Jesus gives of that younger son. Well, the younger son eventually comes to his senses, right? He's kind of dirt poor, longing to feed, him stuff, feed himself with the slop the pigs are eating. And he comes home, and the father welcomes him back. Oh, I can't believe you come back. Come home. And he throws a big party that his son's, son has returned. But then the camera switches from the younger rebellious son to the older righteous religious son. And he's out in the field, and he says, What's going on back at the house? And one of the servants says, oh, you don't understand. Your younger brothers come home and your dad's throwing them a really big party to welcome them back. And the older son is ticked off. The older son says, what? I've been here for years slaving, doing everything my father wants, jumping through all these crazy hoops that he sets up. I'm keeping my nose clean. I'm following the orders. And what do I get? He comes home after squandering all of his inheritance, Father welcomes him back and throws a big party. I'm not going. The father goes out to the older son and says, yo, yo, what's your problem? Your younger brothers come home. We have to welcome him back. But his self-righteousness and his religiosity won't allow him to go in. Now, here's the point. Both of those sons are lost. Neither of them are where they're supposed to be. They're supposed to be in the Father's presence in the party. They're both lost. But here, here's where it gets hard for us, right? But the older son is more lost than the younger son. Because the older son doesn't look lost. You know, the, the younger son, he looks lost, right? The older son doesn't look lost. He's home, jumping through the hoops that the Father sets up. But Jesus says, no, 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 they're both lost. In fact, the older son, the one jumping through the hoops, he's more lost because he doesn't look lost. Isn't that exactly what Paul does in Romans 1 and 2? We've got three defendants. One's living off the rails. Everybody can look and say, man, you're really lost. But there are others. There are the righteous ones. There are the religious ones. They don't look lost. Look a little closer. Could they stand in the judgment if their lives are on butt dial? Could they stand if the externals are hiding an internal imitation? God will not be swayed by such pretending. So by the time we come to the end of chapter 2, Paul's ready to say, for all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. But don't forget the bookends. The gospel is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who trusts Jesus. And even though all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, through Jesus... Redemption can come. We get to that part next week. Live in the law and order section of chapters 1 and 2. And the good news of the gospel 
will cease being good news and it'll be great news. Let's stand and pray. Father, even though it's hard to kind of track through this courtroom scene, you know that we need it and that's why it's here. And you knew that Paul's readers needed it in Rome. Because it's real easy for us to put the blame on you, to put the blame on others, to put the blame on someone else. And Lord, there's not a person in this room that isn't tempted to say, I know people like that. I condemn people like that. I hate people like that. But we don't know the truth until we say, I am people like that. And once we admit that, then we're in the right position to receive the gracious, great message of forgiveness and acquittal that comes through Jesus. Lord, help us to live that and to share that because that's the best news that human beings that are in the defendant's seat will ever hear. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, thank you all for coming. If you'd like to grab somebody, because you have a question, grab somebody in a red shirt, make your way to next steps, and before you leave, make sure you have the app on your phone.